Ladies and gentlemen, this is Sam Gilstrap. Thank you for joining us today on the Ghost Lights podcast. We are going to present to you tonight part one of our two-part conversation with John Moore. Please stay tuned and keep those ears open for part two coming out very soon. So strap in, pour yourself a drink, and enjoy. Dan, do the damn thing. Ladies and gentlemen, it is your boy, Sam Gilstrap. I've got your significant other undulating, and there will be no underrating. That's right. The Ghost Lights Podcast, we are back. I am uh, rocking the Colorado Avalanche jersey because the season starts tonight. Go Avs. My guest is rocking the Boston Bow Sox, the Red Sox. We're not going to, you know, make fun of them too bad for that. It's John Moore in the house, everybody. A long time coming. What's up, John? I'm only wearing this Boston Red Sox jacket because it's really cold in my house right now, <laughs> and it's going to get me through this hour. So, I, I love my I love my Rockies, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I know I know you're a big Rockies fan. There is no judgments here, hmm. and and we're not we're in the middle of the off season. The only team that's active out of the Rockies and the Red Sox are the Red Sox because they got the money and they at the very least like to spend the money. We've already lost half your listeners, though. Have we? Because we started talking sports? Talking sports, that's right. Oh, no, it's okay. It's okay. Hey, there's other things out there than theater, and they know I like a lot of stuff. I've talked about video games. I've talked about bourbon. I could talk about sports. What are we going to do when we lose Nolan Arenado? Um, we're going to continue to be the same mediocre bag of bones team that we've been for the last 25 years. Are we still going to go to their games? Can we go to games ever again? I don't. I mean, we could. In in about six months, um, hopefully, at least ten percent of us will have taken the vaccine by then, and I'll bring my mask and my visor, and I'll go sit in the rock pile because no one sits there, even though they're the cheapest seats. Five dollars last I checked. You know, Sam, when I came back to Denver to 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 join the Denver Post, it was in the sports department, and I spent yes. my my first seven years was was specifically in response to how was the Denver Post going to cover a Major League Baseball team for the first time. And I, I, was, I was covering the team during the years when there wasn't a seat in the rock pile for seven years. You yeah. know? I mean, you just couldn't get a seat. And I go to the games now and I just think it's just, it's just so sad because it's, it's, it's you and it's me and it's John Ashton and that's about it. Yeah. Oh, my, my, my main man, Peter Marullo, he goes to the game. There you go. Okay. Yeah. So at least there's four of us. Bob Bose, he hooks me up with a big ticket. Yeah. Um, allotment in the summertime. Big ups to him. He's a big fan. But yeah, if there's only five of us in the stands. Now we truly have lost whatever listeners you have left, though. Yeah. Well, it's okay. We'll bring them back. We'll bring them back. I mean, the sound of my dulcet tones on this podcast. Are you kidding me? Ladies and gentlemen, we today are sponsored unofficially by Maker's Mark and a little bit of uh, bitters. So. Cheers to you. I hope you have a beverage. Cheers. Cheers. Let's shake I've that got, out. I've got my 48 ounces of Diet Dr. Pepper. Mm-hmm. Matches sip for sip. Do it. Do it. Um, and if every time we we'll, we'll do a drinking game. Every time we talk about sports, we'll take a sip. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I think we've already done we've done done enough sips on that. <laughs> yeah. So you you brought up an interesting point. Talk to me about your your transition into theater because for. For as we were kind of like poking fun at each other in the beginning, I came into acting um, well into you being established as what I dubbed the preeminent theater voice in Colorado at that time. Um, the 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 he, you were the name that came up whenever we were like, oh, have to have a good show tonight. John Moore's in the house. He's going to talk about us. And so like that that was a thing of like, oh, respect, reverence but you had a life before that and you've had an ex- a life that's evolved around theater since. And I'd like to get to know all of that. You come to Denver, you start working the Denver post and sports. How did that come about? Well, I'm a Denver native. I grew up in our Valley, and, um, and my, my, the first part of my sports career was in, was in, was in journalism, but I don't think that a lot of people knew at the time that I had also had parallel lives and I was, uh, I had had a theater life my whole life as well too. Um, I never 
did it in high school and college for the purpose of of doing it for a living but it was theater was my safe place it was my home in high school i could tell you all kinds of stories that that performers tell you all the time about the 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 safe haven they found in high school in this uh weird group of freaks and geeks that we call theater people Mm -hmm. and uh they were they were my people too um and when i went to college i was a wide open book i studied um uh, journalism for a time, but then I switched to liberal arts because I just wanted to learn a little bit about everything. I wanted to know, I wanted to take intro to business, but I also wanted to take intro to Ukrainian literature. I wanted to, to audition for the plays, but I just, I mean, I just didn't want to commit to a profession in college. I just think college is where you get exposed to as many different ideas as you can. Mm. And so I did, I did high, uh, theater even beyond college, there was at one time uh, a really thriving um, young, young adult theater company called The Original Scene that existed in downtown Denver for 20 years. And it was a year round uh, organization that presented um, major, massive musicals, plays, classes um, down there at 19th and Logan. Many, many, many people who um, were performing in those days have gone on to major careers, both in in Denver and on, and on Broadway, uh, locally, people like Nick Sugar and uh, I could just I could just tell you a whole bunch. But for me, that was my that was my refuge in in college. You know, we would do we would do plays and and I started to direct and teach down there. Um, and in the meantime, I was I graduated from college, got a job in the sports department at the Denver Post, which is a nighttime job. Mm-hmm. And uh, my hours were like three thirty in the afternoon until one or two in the morning which left all my days free. And I was asked um, by a couple of schools, Matchbuff and Holy Family, to to teach both theater and some journalism and direct the plays. And And I was available during the day. And in, the, and in those Catholic schools that don't pay much uh, of anything, that you don't necessarily have to be a certified teacher to do that kind of stuff. They just needed people to offer the classes. And I still think to this day that um, maybe short of starting the Denver Actors Fund, uh, teaching was the most fulfilling job I've ever had in my life. Um, and so long story short, I got involved with, I got involved with the sports department. I became the deputy sports editor. Uh, I, I had a, I had a nomadic period where I, I had an opportunity to go work for a sports newspaper in New York for Frank DeFord called the national sports daily. And I worked there as the major league baseball editor for a couple of years. Um, that paper unfortunately folded so I went to a newspaper in Dallas that was 140 years old, and that newspaper folded about 10 weeks later. I, I worked for two newspapers that folded within five months of each other. Um, and then I found a home at the Raleigh News and Observer, um, stayed there for a couple of years, saw, covered a couple of national championship basketball teams. Um, neither of us drank when I said that, Sam. Talking sports. Oh, we did, we did um, talk sports. Yeah, so... Um, but then the, the Denver was awarded its uh, Major League Baseball team, the, the Rockies, and we had two years to prepare for that. But the Denver Post had never uh, dedicated the, the resources to covering a Major League Baseball team before. So that required, you know, re- realigning the entire staff. And so I came in and I um, was the editor of a, of, a, of a special section every week called Baseball Monday, mm-hmm. um, which was an introduction to baseball for, uh, re- for Denver Post readers. It was a really, really special time in Denver, um, the, the launching of the Rockies. And like, like we said, they went seven years without not selling a seat, you know. And I kept thinking theater companies could really learn a lot from those first seven years with the Rockies. Um, and, uh, but it was, a, it was a vampire existence, and it took its toll. I mean, uh, you, you and I met at, during those times when I was in the sports department at the yeah. Denver Post, and you were working at the YMCA across the street, and you said hello to me all the time, and I would come in at the oddest of hours, and it was because of that, you know, vampire existence. Uh, I worked weekends, I worked holidays, I barely took a day off, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and after uh, after about seven years more of that, I... I, I had an opportunity to go be to, to go to work for the Washington Post as their night sports editor. Um, I had felt like at that time I'd moved around the country about as much as I'd wanted to. Um, I'm from a very large Denver family, and um, I had a, a, a brother of mine who passed away at that time, and my family was 
was really hurting and really reeling and um, and moving at that time would have been particularly hurtful to them. So I just didn't want to go, but I knew that I needed to make some changes in my life. And so I went to my boss and I was very lucky to work for an editor at the Denver Post who told me something I'll never forget. He said, I would rather lose you to another department than lose you to another paper. What what would you like to do? And I said, well, what I really want to do is be the film critic. Um, But there was one and a very successful one. Um, So he let me switch from, from sports to arts and entertainment. And he sort of just gave me to the editor of that department and said, you know, the next time there's a job opening, we'll just call it even. And it was, it was wonderful because I met this very enthusiastic editor. I wasn't really taking anybody's place. So he said, well, what do you want to cover? And I said, well, what I really want to cover is, is uh, indie, you know, underground music in the Denver area. We don't, the Denver Post wasn't really covering it at the time. Mm. And we were covering the, the major acts that were coming through town, but Denver had a really thriving uh, music scene, but not very many people knew it. And so that was an opening um, in our coverage. He, he just said, go for it. So I, I essentially spent a year as a general assignment features writer, but primarily focusing on um, uh, in, on underground bands in Denver. And it was during that time that I started uh, a music festival that's called the UMS, which is still around today. It's now grown to the largest uh, music festival in Denver every summer. It's four days, 375 bands. I started that in 2001 as, um, you know, five bands, five bucks, <laughs> um, <clears throat> as a way of really exposing people to to some of our great local bands. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that for a year, and that was a- around the time that the longtime theater critic at the Denver Post took a buyout and was gone two weeks later. Mm-hmm. And um, my boss gathered the entire staff, which was about 17 people at the time, and said, um, I, you know, it's the theater critic job at the Denver Post. We have to do a national search. It's, it, the, the job, de- you know, deserves that. This is how... So much of what we're going to talk about, Sam, is about the about how much has changed in the past twenty years. Well, when I when I was approached about doing this job, it was I, what what happened is I volunteered to do it temporarily for two months while my boss conducted a national search for a a qualified, experienced theater critic who they would move to Denver and pay their expenses and give them a pretty decent salary because the theater critic job at a major newspaper like the Denver Post demanded that. Oh, and, that was and, an easier time to lie on a resume, too. I should have applied. Well, there you go. Well, <laughs> you know, it never occurred to me that I was going to do it for a living. I just, you know, he just, we just had a staff meeting and he goes, does anybody know anything about theater? And we'd be willing to, to just cover for two months. And Sam, everybody's face just kind of dodged. It went, you know, please don't pick me. Please don't pick me. But I was like, I raised my hand. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I could do some theater. And I remember one guy turned right next to me and he, he, he was like, what does the sports guy know about theater? No, don't answer that. Just, just as long as you do it, I don't have to. Exactly. And, and I did it for a couple months. And at the end of that two months, my boss was pretty happy with the way the coverage was going. And he hadn't even interviewed a single person. And he pulled me into his office and he essentially said, you know, I think this is going well. Is this, is this a job that you think that you would want to do permanently? And I didn't have the self-esteem to really think that I was worthy of that because of, you know, I had my love of theater and I had confidence in my ability to write, but I too was feeling like the Denver Post readers deserve somebody who has been doing this uh, for a smaller paper for years and years. Mm-hmm. So he said, just, just think about it, just think about it. And, um, you know, if you don't mind indulging me, I'll tell you the story. The, the real mm-hmm. reason, the real reason I said yes was because of Frank Rich who was the longtime theater critic at the New York Times, who later, who, who was known around the country as the butcher of Broadway, because at that era, at that time, the era of the really powerful daily newspaper theater critic, Frank Rich could close a show in, in New York City with a negative review uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the 90s. And he had moved on, and it's funny because your podcast and its name, he had written a book called Ghostlight. And 
he was doing a book tour uh, to cities around the country and he was doing a reading at the Tattered Cover. And typically when somebody of that stature comes through, they find the beat writer of that person's uh, beat and they say, would you like to interview the person and do a story to tell people that such and such is coming to Denver? So I had been approached about interviewing Frank Rich and I was terrified because it was the butcher of Broadway. Yeah. Um, I didn't even think I could get through an interview with him without being eviscerated, you know? Um, yeah. Right just moments after this staff meeting where my boss offered me the job, um, my phone rang with my appointed interview with my scheduled interview with Frank Rich. And, and he was, he was turned out, you know, as, as not to be as scary as you might think. And he was, he was a lovely interview because in part, because he had, you know, some books to sell and we had a lovely interview. And at the end of the interview, he mm-hmm. said, he said, wait a second, by the way, who are you anyway? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I, I, I make it a point to know who all the theater critics are. I've never heard of you. And I'm like, well, let me tell you my story. And I told him my story. And I said, as a matter of fact, just minutes before our interview, my boss offered me the job full time. He goes, well, are you going to take it? And I said, well, probably not. And he said, well, why not? And he just said, well, look at you. You look at, you know, this job, it deserves an experienced person, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, um, do, you, do, you, do you want me to help you decide? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He just goes, well, send me a couple links, email me a couple links to your stuff, and I'll tell you whether you should take that job or not. <laughs> it was like, and it was so liberating, Sam, because I was like, yeah. oh, this is the Butcher of Broadway. I'll send him a, a review, and I'll send him a feature story that I've just written. He's mm-hmm. going to see right through me, mm-hmm. and he's going to tell me, for the love of God and theater, please let them hire a professional. <laughs> um, but instead, he he called me back maybe, you know, an hour later and he had read both of my stories and he said, John, I have a question for you. And he, I said, what's that? And he goes, are you prepared to live a life where you're going to be misunderstood? You're going to, people are going to assume you're an asshole. You're going to, there's going to be antagonism wherever you go. You have to be comfortable knowing that you could turn down the corner uh, of aisle eight at King Supers and run into somebody who you've written about that, that recently, who's going to turn and look at you and, and go the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, you have to be comfortable with that life though, because theater demands a, a voice in your community who respects the art enough to have a high critical bar and not to be mean or, or cruel about it. But if you respect your readers and you respect the art of theater, you just can't hand out re- reviews like bouquets, you know, you, you have to be tough. And are you prepared to be tough? And I said, well, I think I can be, yeah, I can be tough. Um, And he said, he said, well, I'll tell you what, don't, don't not take the job because you don't think that you're good enough because I've read your stuff and I think you can be, you can do this job. And that was enough confidence for me to be able to go to my boss and say, why don't we give it a one-year trial period where if I'm terrible at this, you can't fire me. You know, I don't want to lose everything because I'm terrible at this job because I can do other jobs. And, Mm -hmm. and we agreed, we had a, we, we had a clause where we said, um, if either one of us are unhappy with the way this is going a year from now, either one of us can pull a plug. And then I did it for 12 years. That's a, that's an amazing story. That was a long story. And I apologize for it. Don't Oh no, John, that is, that is, that is, excuse the English. That's fucking gold. I mean, that would be like, if I if I were like playing basketball and Jordan walked up, Michael Jordan walked up and saw me shooting and then gave me that piece of advice. Yeah. yeah. Like challenged me to to show him what I had. And he goes, like, you can do this. If you want to be great, you have to be an asshole. And I'm like, okay. You know, I, we're gonna drink here because I just watched the last dance finally. And uh that does sound like something Michael Jordan would say to somebody. He absolutely would say that. And that is why I fucking love that man. Cheers. Michael Jordan. Here's to Michael Jordan. I, but at the same time, too, I really took it seriously while I was a theater critic, too. I mean, it, let me put it this way. I had to learn this lesson the hard way, but um, but I, I never got into it to be hated. I never wanted to be to be feared. I never wanted to walk into a room and change the temperature. Um, but it's a very hard job, and it's there's a presumption of conflict. And it took me years to feel really welcomed by this theater community. And in a lot of ways, I didn't really feel like I was fully embraced by the community until, until I quit. 
you know, yeah. it's just, but you know what, that's better than those, than those critics. And you know who I'm talking about who ingratiate themselves with these theater companies and they go to their opening night parties and they drink their free wine and they look like they're bought and paid for and their reviews generally kind of show it. Yeah. And so I had to live a life in the shadows. I had to be really mindful about who I, who, who, or if I socialized, who I dated, you know, one reason I never drank alcohol in a theater was because people will use whatever vulnerability you expose to them against you. If you happen to write something that, that is not what they wanted to hear. So I had to be above reproach for 12 years and it was a, it was a lonely life. I, I, it was one of the things like when I was going to have you on is because like from me and my perspective, when I got started, um, I did a show at vintage. We did Romeo and Juliet and you reviewed that. And I was, and I was like the ensemble was mentioned and I was in the ensemble and a young actor that I was, I had, I took it so personally. Right. And it wasn't until I got older, like much, much older and had many more, positive and negative reviews in my in my rear view that I started to really kind of appreciate the quality of of what that work has to be and how as an artist as an actor on stage you just got to let them be their artist like just keep working at it as opposed to making it a personal thing I hear you I I've I've heard you talk about this before on your podcast and I, mm -hmm. I one thing uh you mentioned that you learned you, you know, you were introduced to theater by being taught in a very academic kind of way. And I, if I could have one wish, it would be that these theater programs from, from uh, UNC all the way down um, would include um, a, a criticism course in, mm -hmm. if you're going to teach an actor how to be a professional actor, one of the major things is to expose them to criticism and to and to teach them how to value and undervalue it and what what to do with that because yeah. i've seen so many really talented artists who've spiraled in the in the face of not getting the review that they want and it's from my vantage point it's it's heart sickening because i don't want to be the person who has the capacity to to make somebody feel awful or less than or whatever. But I also blame in some ways these institutions that insulate college students from criticism because in, in some ways, I've made this comparison before, but I, I sort of feel like there's not that much difference between a critic and a director in one way. And that yeah. is that, you know, I've directed a number of shows myself and, you know, and when you're sitting in rehearsal, you've got your pad of paper out or your computer and you're taking notes. And at the end of the rehearsal, you send them to your cast, you talk it out or you email them to them. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they take that, they take that as advice from a mentor and from somebody who has your best wishes at heart and they, they want to help you do the best you possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, you know, then a critic comes into a show with a notebook and takes notes and, 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 and in a lot of ways, I mean, a review should never be, this is how I would have directed it. I don't want to give yeah. that impression, but okay. it is, these are my thoughts on what worked and what didn't work and what might impact a, a consumer's potential decision about whether or not they should come and see the show, take this into account and make up your own decision. Sure. But, but really what's the difference for the artist in terms of accepting, you know, or processing those notes from a, a critic and a director. The major difference is that one person is on the inside of the family bubble and is a trusted member of the creative team. And one person's a sniper from the outside and they're to be despised and hated and, and ridiculed. And, and, and it's, and it's, but the intentions are not often that different, you know, I mean, yeah. well, with one major exception, you know, I'm not, I'm not writing reviews to try to impact a person's performance, but but I, but I, but I think that the process of what we go through and in, in just taking into account what we're seeing, writing down notes and writing review is not that different from a director sitting in his own rehearsal, taking notes and giving them right back to his audience or to his cast. I think you're absolutely right. That's a great correlation there. Um, the, the, I would think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but a critic wants high quality. Like if you're out there, writing working on like seeing a piece you want to be entertained 
you want to enjoy the evening. Yes. That's, that's such an important point. And, yeah. and, and keep in mind too, that, the, you know, the only difference I'm, I'm speaking now, of course, from my past life, I haven't been a critic since 2012, but, oh. but when, when I was in that position and I would be sitting right next to somebody else, I, I'm very mindful of the fact that that person might be having a completely different experience based on, on what issues they bring into it. If it's a particularly, um, moving play about sexual abuse and whatever their past experiences are, are informing what they're thinking about it. How many shows they've seen at that place is affecting their performance. What kind of a day they had is affecting that performance. I, the, myself and the person next to me can have a completely different experience at the theater, but what makes it, what, what's different is for, for fair or unfair, I have been charged with committing my visceral response to to paper and distribution and for people's consideration. And the other person, you know, nowadays, thankfully, has like Facebook or whatever that's a little bit of an equalizer. Mm-hmm. But but you're in that you're in that awkward place. But you make such an important point because any critic with any sort of ethics whatsoever walks into any show hoping for to be transported, hoping that this is going to be the best thing that they've ever seen in their lives. And the reason, Sam, is because that's what you want to write about. Yeah. It's so much more fun to find a little show that was, you know, maybe only eight people were in there with you and mm-hmm. and no other critics have bothered to come and see it. And you get to go and write in a newspaper that no longer really exists in the same way, but you mm-hmm. – you know, I knew that I could go, this is, goes back to my years were 2001 to 2012, but I knew that I could go home and write an essay that sometimes writes itself when the performance warrants it. And you get to be the guy who gets to put in 500,000 newspapers that you really need to see this show. It's the greatest thrill of the job. I mean, yeah. and when you're on the other end of the spectrum and go, and you're like, shit, there are some really objective reasons why this was not up to the standards of this theater company and the readers of the Denver post are the same people who are the potential audience for your show. And I was put into a position over and over and over again of sitting there going, do I give him a pass? Do I just, do Mm. I, do I, do I, do I want to be the bad guy? And I always have to remember a a short, here's a short story. If you don't mind it. Um, Please. Well, it's a it's a phone call that I got um, after writing a review of a show that was, you know, it didn't it, it didn't have the greatest impact on me. It didn't have a great lasting effect. I mean, I saw hundreds, if not thousands of shows by the time I I finished. And on this one particular night, I, I do know that I had written a series of reviews that were middle of the road, middle of the road. And and like you had mentioned, you you can't wait for the street to end so that you can like really celebrate something yeah and you go into this show and this show is is not it's not that show but i went home and i was i was weary to be honest about being the the bad guy yeah and i was just sitting there going what would my mother say (laughs) and i just i you know i i erred on the side of compassion okay i i went soft on that review i didn't say anything that wasn't true i didn't overly praise it but i just didn't do my job and get real specific about all the ways in which this particular show was not completely up to standards. Mm-hmm. The, the review ran and I got a call uh, a couple of days later from a young father who said, who was very respectful on the phone. He goes, just let me tell you where I come at when I read your reviews. He said, you know, my wife and I met uh, through theater. We dated uh, through a mutual love of theater. And then we got married and then we had two kids very quickly. And we went from being able to go to, to theater two to three times a week to going to theater once a year where we had to have, we had an annual theater date. They had no family in Colorado. So their one of their parents actually would drive in from Kansas for a weekend to take the kids specifically so that they could have a night at the theater. That's how important it was. And I knew where this was going because, yeah. <laughs> because he pointed out to me, he said, well, you know, we don't know what's good and what's not good. So we, we make our decisions based on your reviews. Wow. And we decided that your review of this show was interesting enough that we t- decided that was going to be our one and only theater production of the year. And my heart sank because I knew where he was going to go. He wasn't a jerk about it at all. He was just like, 
he was just, you know, John, you're free to have your opinion and I'm free to have mine. But there, again, there are some really objective reasons why this was, you know, not a, not really a high quality show. Mm-hmm. And um, you misled us. You, you sent us to, you know, but it was just not a very good show for them. And normally I wouldn't take responsibility for them not having a good time of a show as long as I was completely honest in my review. And I wasn't, I had gone soft and I had to keep in mind from that point on that there are babysitters involved and people are paying for parking and people are, you know, making plans and theater, a night at the theater is a sacred event. And, you know, the real lesson there is just, you gotta be, you, you have to be fully honest to your visceral response to the art because if you start to write for the theater community, maybe you didn't mention Sam Gilstrap's name last time and, and you're and you're thinking about stuff like that. And you're like, it, it might mean a lot to Sam if I throw his name in this review. If I ever did that, that would be, then I would be not worth my my pen in weight um, as a theater critic because, and I'll, and I'll tell you, my, my editor, I, I had, there was an editor turnover during my, time as theater critic and the next editor was a very different editor than the one who hired me and he called me into his office i'd been doing this for five or six years and i'm like i, I think i know how this is I, I how to do this at this point yeah. and he sat me down and he said i want you to fundamentally change the way you write re- your reviews from now on and wow. i was like what are you talking about and he said he said you make a point to there's always a paragraph about the costuming and there's a paragraph about the light design and there's a paragraph about the fourth supporting actor from the left he goes, it's a checklist. You're an insider. You're writing these reviews for the edification of the people on that team. And that's not who we should be writing our reviews for. Our reviews are to introduce the issues of the play to the readers of the Denver Post and answer the question to them, why now? What is what is this play about that's going to fundamentally um, inform their lives? Why do they need to stop everything and go see the show, or why do they need to skip it? But that mm-hmm. doesn't—it's not about the people making the show at that point. It's about the issues of the show. It's about what what how you know how that affects them in their lives. And I just said, well, it sounds like you're telling me not to name names. And he said, I challenge you to write your next review where you don't name you don't name a single person. I don't want to know the name of the director. I don't want to know the name of the star. I want you to write about the play. And it was like, it was like pulling teeth out of my own mouth. You know, I was just like, this just seems like I'm, you know, there was this one and really wonderful performance. And now it didn't turn out to be like across the board, but he was telling me as a dispassionate reader of the Denver Post, that review was more useful to him. Mm-hmm. Then the one that talked about the the fantastic individual performance, you know, he's like, that's what you have your awards at the end of the year for is uh-huh. to talk about how great they are. And I said to, you know, we had to, we had to come to an agreement because sure. there are certain, certain shows that you see where it's, it's the performance that is the reason that you should go see it. Mm-hmm. So I've got to name that person, yeah. but we had this back and forth because he, you know, here I am feeling like, I need to name as many people as I can. And he was going, you need to name as few people as you can. Um, And to always keep in mind who your readers are and your readers are not the people in the show. They're they're the people who are paying your salary, Mm -hmm. who are the people who are subscribing to the Denver Post. By the time you stopped writing for theater in in terms of the the critique aspect of it, um, what, what process did you find was I guess, for lack of a better phrase, the right process to use overall was it a, was it the initial way the the le- the way you closed out or somewhere in between? Well, I think he had a good point. Um, I, I think I, I I think I sort of drifted towards insular the longer the more I got to know the theater community and got to know who people really were, um, and I think he pulled me back out of that. And in mm-hmm. and and one of the great things, you know, again, you, you, you worked at the YMCA right across the street yeah. all the time. And I used to pay attention when I would walk down the row of the treadmills and see what people had their Denver Post turned to, you know. And his whole thing was, you know that you've written a successful theater article when somebody is reading it who doesn't go to the theater, yeah. He said, every review is an opportunity to, for a creative writing exercise to bring people in to, to read something that's, that's a, it's about women disappearing on the border of Juarez. 
that's a social issue. That's if that's what the play is about, then the story should be about introducing the reader to the fact that there is a problem of women disappearing from the border uh, of of Juarez, and this is why it's such a an important issue right now. And this is why everybody needs to know about it. And if you want to know more about it, maybe you should go see this play because that's what it's about. Yeah. Right. And that I think I got really to a point at the end where I really kind of was comfortable with the idea that it's the issue, stupid. Mm. Do you feel when you started writing Insulary, that was a means to, I don't know, protect yourself from the, from the community with which you were living in, coexisting in? No, I think it's because we all start to live in our own bubbles, you know, wow. um, the longer I was doing, you know, I went, I went 12 years where I saw at least three shows a week and that was my routine. And so when I changed my life, suddenly the only people I ever saw were people in the theater community that might just be on stage and in the lobbies. But uh, you do that long enough, you forget that there's an outside world. Um, mm -hmm. It's such a grind and it's such a, it's such a routine that you, you get into. And, and I think I just fell into a, a pattern where, you know, I know that theater is a niche audience. I know that there's, that, that there's only a small percentage of the population that even has live theater going as part of their social routines. And mm -hmm. um, you start to feel like the only people reading you are the very few people within that bubble. But it was a good reminder that when you are writing for the Denver Post, which is a general interest newspaper for the entire city um, and state of Colorado, that every story has the potential to be picked up and folded and read while the people are running on the treadmill at the YMCA. Yeah. And you never know when that person's going to read a theater story and go, oh, my God, I, I think I actually want to go see a play. Yeah. That's the thing I think I miss the most about no longer being a critic is that I no longer have the power of distribution, mm. you know, the, in knowing that whatever I write may not be read by 500,000 people, but it would be printed in 500,000 newspapers and there's the potential there to, to it being seen, you yeah. know, and now we all live in a world where you write something and you put it on Facebook and you hope that, you know, a couple hundred people might see it. Yeah. You get enough likes and shares. Yeah. I was, uh, I, I did a, I had the good fortune of the honor of a couple of nights ago doing a, uh, uh, basically a, a TED talk on podcasting for the Colorado Theater Guild. And uh, I'm, I'm, I was, I'm hip to your world. I know what you're up to. Yes. Yes, you are. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not giving you any news bombs at all. John. I know you're, you're, I know, you, I know you're with me here. They also sent me three emails that day alone, I think. Did, and, and you still, you still blew me off. So whatever. <laughs> But what I'm getting at is one of the one of the points I wanted to talk about in my TED talk, as it were, uh, that you brought up to an extent is um, this idea of care for the audience. So, like, I've got this podcast, and I understand that on a given pod, I'll get a certain number of downloads, and those people will listen to it, like you. And I have learned over the course of my four or five years doing it, I've got like a responsibility to some of the things that I say and act on. So I try to, to some extent, like, I don't want this to be too dirty, but, but I do cuss. I don't want to spend time like talking about bowel movements or whatever. I don't want to spend, I don't want to deviate too far from theater. And when I do talk theater, there's reasons why I have rules like saying Rubik's cube or don't get fired is because there is still some reverence to the world that I'm living in to understand that that was something that you were grappling with to an extent when you talk about that audience member calling you and how a night out at the theater is an event for some families. Um, that it's then you being cognizant of that as you were taking pen to paper. I mean, that's, that's really, it's awesome to hear you say that is what I'm getting at. Well, the other thing we have in common is, is the, the, the podcasting life. And what I find interesting about your podcast is how much the form has changed and really hasn't changed in the last you know 15 years because when i was um doing theater at the denver post one of my great points of pride was taking advantage of all the new media um we had a very robust denver post theater website um i had an entire website that was dedicated to high school theater we had a page that was dedicated just for just for new play for if a play was a new play we would post the um uh, script samples 
Um, I also did a thing called uh, Critic Karaoke, which was uh, an offshoot of my podcast, which was I would ask actors around town to do dramatic readings of some of my reviews, <laughs> hopefully re- reviews of shows that they were in. Um, and that was a bl- that was a blast because it took all the hot air out of out of my sails uh, intentionally. But I did it. But I did a thing in the aughts called Running Lines. I mean, I I did I did my podcast. I did almost 200 episodes of my podcast while I was theater critic at the Denver Post. And it's it's funny because at that time I feel like the purpose of a podcast was, you know, keep it short. You know, 10 to 12 minutes per episode. Pick one featured actor or person, sort of the way you're doing it. Um, give them that time. For me, it was always connected in with. A show that they were doing, so that there was a there was an action that people could go uh, from. So, so you, ha- you so you're introducing the personality of the person. Mm. My intention as a podcast host was to get people talking, and then I edited the heck out of it and took as much of me out of it as I possibly could, because in the idea of keeping it short, going people aren't tuning in to listen to me. People mm. are tuning in because you're introducing them to somebody. And I think that worked for its time. I, I sort of feel like, even though the sound quality was even worse then than it is now, but I kind of feel like when I die, that those 175 episodes, those those MP3s, in a way, they're like landfill. <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll probably outlast anything that I wrote in uh, print. But I think what's fascinating about listening to your podcast now, and podcasts in general, mm. is just how they've grown in terms of people's comfort level like they really want to settle into a podcast like if you you know you do yours for an hour and I think people get in the habit where oh if I'm going to be going for a walk for an hour that's mm-hmm. going to be my Sam Gilstrap time I was taught in the aughts where it was like if you do anything more than 10 or 12 minutes and people aren't going to even start listening to it but I think with the advent maybe the pandemic has really helped us but the the you know the advent of podcasts like Smartless and and Dak Shepard's uh, podcast where they just really go in depth with somebody for an hour, an hour and a half, sometimes two hours. And I think people are getting comfortable with the idea that it's more of a conversation. So I I feel like what you're doing is interesting because even though I've been doing most of the talking, I think it's better when it's to, I, I think it's better for me to listen to podcasts when it's more of a conversation when it's less of one person doing all the talking and you have the opportunity over time to really kind of establish yourself as a leading voice in the local theater community. You're actually a perfect example of what I've told budding journalists and classes in um, discussions for 20 years, which is that you, you no longer need to be sort of sanctioned by the Denver post as to be a leading voice in this community. The one good thing about the demise of the mainstream media against all of the awful, awful, awful things that that implies is that the the internet is an, it, it is, it is an equalizer in the sense that anybody has the opportunity if they're willing to put in the work and, and you've been doing it for a while now, yeah. where when people start to turn to you to listen to a continuity of coverage, they're not, they're, they don't care whether or not you were hired and are getting a salary from a media company to do it. After a while, the portfolio speaks for you and you just become the guy like you just become the guy who does the podcast. And 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 now suddenly, you know, with with enough time, you're you're a major voice within this community. I felt I felt the same way when when Avery Anderson, who has since left for Florida, um, when he was doing his theater coverage as a college student Mm -hmm. for Metro State. I told him the same thing at the same time. I said, I said, everybody's got distribution now. So that means everybody is the media. And and that's created in some ways just this very difficult to navigate abyss of coverage, you know, and people have to be able to find it. But it, but if you're strong enough and consistent enough about it, somebody like Avery Anderson became really well known in the local theater community and appreciated because of his work ethic yeah. um, by doing it through a college outlet. It didn't matter whether you had a a job job, you know, so all of which is a roundabout way of saying, I, I hope you keep doing what you're doing. And, and I hope you feel emboldened that you're part of the story. You know, I, I find it interesting when we diverge from the guest and we get another little sliver of your personal life and your past, it, you know, it just makes you want to know more because you're the, con- you're the constant thing. You know what I mean? 
definitely. Well, thank you so much for 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 that for that last that last little bit about me the compliment. I really appreciate it. I, I definitely don't want to. I definitely don't want to stop the ghost lights anytime soon. It's been. I started it, and then you know I, I would get bogged down. I would I would get to the feeling where shows that I was had the good fortune of earning spots in. Yeah, were like slowing down my ability to dedicate time to the podcast and right. it's something that i care about so i want to make sure that I, I i it's not going away anytime soon it definitely will hopefully change in terms of maybe earning enough to get gas in my car yeah um, that would be I nice. hear you there you can't yeah. really do it unless you've got another job but i guess yeah, my exactly. larger point is that if your particular format were a were 10 minute episodes it really shouldn't be about you mm-hmm. <laughs> But if your format is an hour, then yeah, let it let us in. That is a great point. One of the things you were talking about in terms of like the conversational aspect of a podcast, especially with this, like what I talked about it in my TED Talk on Monday, it was I got started doing the podcast because I was so afraid to talk to other actors after a show. Hmm. I hated it. I hate it now. I still do too. Hey. The worst yeah. thing the worst thing about leaving my job at the Denver Post yeah. was that I lost my excuse to be the first person out the door. <laughs> and you know, once I stopped being a critic, you know, yeah. all these very kind people would say, "Well, stick around after the show and tell me what you think." And I'm like, yeah. "That's my idea of hell." Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> the only good thing about leaving that job as as a critic is now nobody has to know what I think. <laughs> what, yeah. Exactly. What I think. And you got a cat, just like, I got to go home and take care of the cat. That's your easy out. I've got a dog now. That's yeah. my excuse for everything. Like oh, it. I can't. I, Mike Mike needs me. He's still <laughs> sleeping, though. He's fine. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not kidding. I used to get, uh, you know, I would get text messages from actors and shows. If I left the show immediately, especially, like, maybe I had somewhere to go, you know? Mm-hmm. I do try to have an, uh, my own life, you know, now. It's yeah. kind of the point. But I would get texts from people saying, you know, I, I'm I'm just assuming that you hated the show since you didn't even bother to stick oh. to stick around and say hello. And I'm like, I want the days back when nobody knew who I was. You don't have to be a critic to get those text messages either. I know. <laughs> you know it, oh God, it's I, I as I, I said multiple times on Monday, and I will say it on this podcast a hundred times. And if you know me at all, I'm in, I am so insecure, and what people think of me is is something that i still grapple with how much i how much um credence i give it but those types of things i'm like i can i just bail is it okay if i just go Mm -hmm. like i i saw the show i sat there and i saw it if you really want my opinion or you really want to talk to me in general reach out to me the thing the thing that we shared together the, the show it, it shouldn't be the only thing that bonds us, which is one of the reasons why the podcast happened is because so many times my conversation was, so what you got going on next? Right. Right. And it was never about how's work. Yeah. How are you like, work? Okay. Is it stressing you out? Like people knew I was working in hospice. Yeah. Working, you know, nine hour days and then going to rehearsal until midnight and then doing it all over again the next day and having a, just being destroyed by my day job, grinding my teeth for four hours, for four years, every night I went to sleep. Right. And still right. trying to do theater. And no one wanted to ask those questions. They want to ask me what was next. I can sympathize. I still, to this day, have no idea what to say to an actor 10 minutes after a show has ended. I mean, as a critic, I had time to go home and really process it and put it into words. I may have only had 12 hours, but I had more than 10 minutes. And I learned really early on the worst thing that you can say you can say when you're trying to make small talk with an actor after a show is, um, so what are you doing next? Yeah. Because like nine times out of ten, the answer is I don't know. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh shit, why yeah. did I open that door? Exactly. <laughs> because no. It's, not to, it's no not to say that I did have like create great bonds with other actors, but like that like that took time. Like I think one time I had a conversation with like Peter who is a good friend of mine. He's like, he's, he's going to be one of my, one of my, my men of honor when I get married, if that should happen. Nice. Bang, bang, bang. Shoot your shot. Um, Too bad. It isn't a video podcast, Sam. It's not. Ladies don't know what they're missing. It's, it's totally fine. They, they know exactly what they're missing and they're totally fine with it. Um, (laughs) But like he, he, he approached me after we did a show together and like his first question was, do you watch sports? What's your favorite teams? How did you fall in love with those teams? 
and that turned into a two-hour conversation and then after that two-hour conversation was like you got anything lined up after this he was like nope cool let's audition together like all right nice yeah and 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 so it's not to say that you can't create a relationship out of those things i was just so insecure about even being considered an actor for years i wouldn't call myself an actor and for years i wouldn't i wouldn't even dare say i was an artist well my equivalent to that story is when i was in new york um as a sports baseball editor i was mm-hmm. invited to a, a wedding of a of a fairly prominent new york playwright um in upstate new york and i was just being invited as as like as a friend okay. and I, I i was i was meeting the playwright for the first time and he made that that awful question was like so so are you a writer mm-hmm. and i said well you know i don't know i i I've got a couple of plays in my head. I've got, you know, I've, I've written some short stories that have, you know, this and that, and it, you know, but mostly I'm an editor and blah, blah, blah. And he just stops me and he just goes, hey, do you write? And I said, yes. And he goes, then you're a writer. Now shut the fuck up about it. And don't, don't ever apologize for it. And don't ever judge, you know, whether you're worthy to be considered one based on somebody else's arbitrary definition of success so the question would comes right back to you it says do you act Mm -hmm. yes i do then you're an actor fuck yeah that's all there is to it oh man i i I would definitely drink to that i'm using my i'll drink some diet dr pepper to that put it on put it in that is a great segue into my my one of my notes that i have written down here i've gotten better at taking notes pre-interview um important (laughs) yeah it's important because like sometimes i think i know enough and i'll just like i'll just let the guy talk and then something will trigger the person talk and i'll trigger a thought and i'll flow with that but what i know now though is that if there's this gigantic pause in our conversation you have the great dan rib doing yoga right behind you right now who's gonna stretch it out he's gonna make it all sound perfect yeah Absolutely. Yeah, he says he's stretching out. He's probably sitting like cross-legged with like a glass of bourbon as well. So I think he's walking his dog. I don't think he's uh, even there. Yeah, no. I, I did 15 minutes of yoga and now I'm drinking whiskey, okay? All right. All was right. That, is that Dan Rib or the voice of God? I'm not sure. What one and the same, my friend. It's both. It's definitely both. I pray at the altar to both. Worship, I should say. So you had a question and I interrupted I, you rudely. I'm, I apologize. don't apologize. I, I love, I, I'm, I'm, this whole thing is a riff. So hell yes, I'm, I'm here for it. Waiting for Obama. Mm-hmm. As a guy who has tried his hand at writing plays, what, what, what drove you to write it? And how did you follow through to getting it up on its feet somewhere? It's a great, it's a great question. And I owe most of the, that answer to Brian Freeland who many of your listeners will remember as the founder and artistic director at the Lita Project. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so lamented. He's, he's a genius. There's just, just a kind of theater that we just are missing in Denver since Brian moved to New York to become a big shot. Um, <laughs> Brian in 2015, along with this company was doing a project that they were putting together um, stories having to do with the gun issue. Mm. And um, I was approached by um, Kenny Storms and, and Brian Freeland to see if I would be interested in writing a short piece. And I had had this idea based on that ubiquitous phrase that Obama is coming for your guns to sit, to do a, like a, a, a riff on waiting for Godot and to be able to say, you know, you're, if you're so convinced about that Obama's coming for your guns, well, what if he really did? And they just wanted a short play. And so I, I wrote a one act that essentially is a, about a family divided deeply by the gun issue that is convinced that Obama's coming for their guns. And the very last thing that happens before the blackout is there's a knock at the door. You don't know. You don't know who's behind the door. But that was a, a nice, tight little short version of the play. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Brian at that point got an opportunity to move to New York. The project went on, I think a year and a half later with a different creative team. Um, it turned out through one of the saddest sort of uh, stories. Uh, the new team had no idea that I had been asked 
to contribute to the project. So they went forward without it. <laughs> and, it and it was just, it was just, the, it was just the oddest thing. But, um, but I did see what they did and it was wonderful. But um, around the time Brian had gone to work for the New York International Fringe Festival, there was a call by the founder of the festival in 2016 that they wanted to make sure that one of their five featured plays addressed the, the gun issue. Mm -hmm. And that, and so he was challenged by this woman to produce submissions um, for consideration for this, I guess you'd call it a slot. And Brian called me up and he goes, you know that waiting for Obama thing you did for us, you know, now a year and a half ago? I said, yeah. Um, he goes, could you, could you expand it to a full length play and could you have it done by January 30th? And it was like January 5th. And I said, <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, sure. Because one of my dearest friends in the world is an actor by the name of John Carroll Lynch, who was in Fargo and in a bunch of other movies. He's currently, he just got offed on Big Sky the other night um, on ABC. Um, he went to Regis High School with me and he's a, just a wonderful guy. He had read my script and his only note on it was that I had chickened out because he said, you can't, can't do a play about Obama coming for your guns and then not have Obama come for your guns. So your act two is that dude who knocks on the door better be Obama because you need to get into it. The, the whole yeah. point of the play happens in the second act. So I took that, that encouragement and I wrote a second act where Obama does show up. And it's, um, it, it was intended to be not a polemic. It was intended to be a, a, a very uh, soulful look at the, at the issue and how it's dividing families and dividing America. And um, that, I'm, you know, as a newspaper person, I'm very good with the deadline. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had a version of the script done by January 30th. Um, it was accepted into the festival that year as a featured production. I was intent from the very beginning that Brian should direct it. He was already living in New York. Um, even though it would have been much easier to just have Brian collect a bunch of his friends in New York and just produce it with an all New York cast. It was really important to me since the story was set in Colorado um, that we develop it as an all Colorado production. So I put together a cast of, uh, of, of wonderful actors, none of whom had ever had the opportunity to perform on a New York stage before people like Lawrence Curry and Leslie O'Carroll and Jessica Robley. And I mean, the whole Luke Sorge, the whole group was, uh, incredible. And they had, they were, they had the opportunity to have a career changing experience by performing that play in New York, which meant the world to me, but it was, it was the Colorado theater community coming together. I had never fundraised, you know, I started the Denver Actors Fund, but I've never really fundraised for my own behalf on anything before. Mm -hmm. uh, but we raised like $30,000 and we did it as an equity production. And, and we had, a, we all had a, a, an incredible life-changing experience. And since then, you know, because the issue isn't going away, we've been asked uh, several times during uh, Donald Trump's inauguration. Um, then there was the, the March for Your Lives and there was Parkland. Uh, that people have asked us occasionally to bring it back to to get the issue to get people talking about the issue again. And then just this past year, we had the wonderful opportunity during the pandemic to get it recorded as a radio play. So we did that and released it um, on all the major podcasting channels. Um, you can actually listen to it right now. It's just you know a, it's like an old fashioned radio play uh, in five episodes. Um, and um, we were approached by Broadway on Demand about whether we had a videotape of our reading and we did. And so now it is uh, licensed and available on Broadway on demand. That's sort of the Netflix for theater and you can watch the play. It's not fully produced. It's the recording of our radio play. Um, but you can order that on Broadway on demand and watch it if you'd, if you'd like as well. That's awesome. Wow. What a ride. It was, it was a wonderful experience and it was um, very encouraging and it was, it was also important for me. I've, I've also, I, I appeared in a play as an actor-ish at mm -hmm. Germinal Stage Denver after I left. I've directed at the Pay Center. Um, I'm gonna be directing again this, uh, once we reopen, I'm gonna be directing a play at Miner's Alley Playhouse called The Treasurer by a Denver playwright named Max Posner. Um, I, I've always felt like it was important if you're gonna be a theater critic to that you have to expose yourself to what it actually takes to create. And I think that having had a life as a director and as a pseudo playwright, 
mm-hmm. uh, in my other life that it made me a more empathetic uh, reviewer as well. I think you need to put yourself into the shoes of the people who have to do it and the courage that it takes to, to do it, to go up on a stage, you know? I think the the more you understand what, you know, what you were talking about earlier, the, the, the fear that you have to overcome and the bravery that it takes, um, I think that at the very least that makes you more empathetic when you're writing about those plays. Oh, I, I, I can only imagine. Um, I have a quick question. Uh, do you, how much time do you have this evening? Um, well, you, you may have heard that my position with the Denver Center for the Performing Arts was eliminated shortly after COVID. So I think my next appointment is um, tax day. All right, tax day? Fantastic. <laughs> um, but I'm going to take a quick, uh, quick break. Okay. I want to keep this going. Um, Dan, let's fill with like, I don't know, my song? Yeah. We'll do like, I'll do a whole professional like cut thing here. This is great. Can we just use sounds of Dan Rib doing yoga? That'd be great. All, all your exhales over top the music. That's not creepy. That's not creepy, not creepy at all. Not at all. Not any. Whoa, that's not the sound I thought it'd be. You better better go get your cord, Sam. I'm going to go get my cord. I'm going to go get my cord. Everything that's involved Dan Riz better be in the actual episode. That's my my only uh, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us thus far. This is the end of part one. Be sure to tune into the Ghost Lights podcast for part two of our conversation with John Moore. Thank you.